Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I introduce today's program, I want to let you know about a little addition that I made to our program notes blog, which, as you uh, probably know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. As you may know, for a long time I've displayed one of my email addresses on that site, but over time it's attracted so many spammers as, uh, well, it's almost useless right now. And so at long last, and after many requests, <laughs> I finally got off uh, dead center and added some contact uh, information, or I should say a contact form, to our site. And I'm happy to say that several of our saloners have already found it and used it. So uh, it seems to be working quite well. Also, uh, you may notice that I reorganized that long list of categories into a hierarchical structure and put them all in a drop-down menu to uh, make things a little easier for you. And uh, for what it's worth, <laughs> I finally understand what some of our fellow saloners have been saying about how out-of-date our program notes site is. And while it won't be fixed right away... By early next year, I plan on having a new site ready and including some of the uh, social networking features of BuddyPress and its add-ons. So if you have some favorite features that you think I should include, please leave a comment in uh, the program notes for today's podcast. And uh, speaking of today's podcast, I'm happy to introduce Mikey Siegel to you. His uh, LinkedIn page describes Mikey as a consciousness hacker, and in a few moments, I'm sure that you're going to understand what that means. The uh, talk of Mikey's that I'm going to play today is the Palenque Norte lecture that he gave at last year's Burning Man Festival. And it was titled, Engineering Enlightenment. Now, to tell the truth, I wish that I hadn't been so tardy in publishing last year's lectures, because uh, this is one that should have been out shortly after he gave it. You see, in May of 2001... Before all of the 9-11 craziness and stuff, I gave a talk at the Mind States Conference titled Psychedelic Thinking and the Dawn of Homo Cyber. And that was the talk that you can hear in my podcast number one. Now, if I had decided to end these podcasts today, which I'm not going to do, <laughs> but if I were to end them today, then today's talk by Mikey would be the perfect ending to a series that began with that Mind States talk of mine. I don't know how old Mikey is today, but my guess is that when I gave that talk, he was still in high school. But he was exactly one of the persons whom I hoped would somehow get the message that I tried to put out that day. In fact, uh, what he and some of his associates have done is to take the idea of psychedelic technology to the next level. In fact, they have taken it to levels that I didn't even dream of 14 years ago. Now, my new wish is that uh, there are a lot of our fellow saloners who are in high school right now and college who will hear what Mikey has to say and then take his ideas to yet another level. And since I don't expect you to go back and listen to my entire talk, instead, let me just read one paragraph from it that relates to what you are about to hear from Mikey. And I quote, I'm quoting myself, <laughs> It is no secret that some of our best minds are working overtime on the development of what can be called digital drugs. 
This new generation of virtual reality devices will be able to launch you into entheospace just as effectively as does LSD today. The commercial availability of these devices will most likely signal the beginning of the last battle in the war on drugs. Finally, we will be able to reframe the issue into what it is really all about, the right to control our own state of consciousness. The Alchemine Society calls this cognitive liberty and defines it as the right of each individual to think independently, to use the full spectrum of his or her mind, and to engage in multiple modes of thought and alternative states of consciousness. Now, when the first government hearings are held in an attempt to ban these new silicon-based cognitive tools, the power elite are going to be forced to confront the fact that it is human thought that they want to control. It is not the substances that the mainstream culture fears. It is the psychedelic thinking that these substances promote, which is actually under attack. Now, that's uh, the end quote from that talk. And, uh, of course, there's much more to it, but just that one paragraph should give you an idea of how excited I am to discover that while I was uh, sleeping, more or less, people like Mikey Siegel were staying up late at night and building the machines of my dreams. Now here's Mikey. Thank you all so much for for coming out on this warm Burning Man afternoon. Um, my name's Mikey Siegel, and I'm going to be talking about enlightenment engineering, which uh, which really is for me um, it's a it's in one aspect a new way of thinking about how we as a species uh, can relate to technology and how technology can be used much in the same capacity that the countless traditions that have been around for many, many thousands of years have been used for human transformation and expansion and shift in human consciousness. And so... My hope is, uh, at the end of the talk, that what we walk away with is at least like a glimmer, um, a new perspective, a new way of thinking about the relationship between humans and technology, and a new way of thinking about the capacity for technology to change our human experience and our experience as social and cultural entities in a very deep and fundamental way. Um, so I'm going to go through, I think, maybe a, a more as a story and talk about how I kind of got started on this path and then some of the projects that I've been involved in. And it's not going to be a super technical talk, but I'll talk about some examples of some interesting technologies that are floating around um, and then end off with maybe some some visions for, for the future, some visions for what's possible. Um, so um, my background is, is as a you know, somewhat traditional engineer. I got a degree in computer engineering, and then I kind of like hit the engineer jackpot, and I was doing uh, my graduate work in robotics at MIT, and you know was kind of doing all this really awesome, amazing, cool, fun, very technical kind of stuff. Um, and ended up graduating and going to work in the same field of engineering. And 
Uh, I'm gonna stand. <clears throat> and what I and what I found was that um, uh, even though I was doing what I had sort of on my list, my sort of bucket list of things that I wanted to get done, as I'm sure many of you in your your life have discovered, or maybe you've been lucky enough to discover, that when you sort of check off the list of these sort of preconceived ideas of what you think you're supposed to do to kind of reach your happiness state or your state of contentment or your state of wholeness or when all these things get done, then life will be good and then everything will be will be complete. Um, I kind of got a lot of those checked off and realized um, I still wasn't there. There was still a sense of incompleteness. There was still a sense of longing, of searching, of seeking, of yearning. And so I, I jumped off the engineering path, and, but as an engineer, as a scientist, as someone with a very logical and rational mind, went off in search of trying to understand how it is that we can realize or experience a deep fundamental sense of well-being, a fundamental sense of feeling okay feeling content, feeling balanced with what is here and now. Um, and not necessarily looking for a new healing modality or looking for um, a, um, a practice to change my external life circumstances, but really trying to get to the very, very heart of human suffering. And what I discovered after a lot of searching and you know, long meditation retreats and psychedelics and ayahuasca and all these kinds of things... Um, what I discovered was that um, that there are thousands of years and countless um, traditions that are designed specifically for this, that are designed specifically to get to the very root of human suffering and to resolve the illusion or the false sense of separateness however you want to say it, that is at the ground, at the base of what creates the conflict, the internal conflict, the mentally caused suffering in our lives. Um, and so I started to look into these traditions, and what I began to appreciate was that these were very systematic, very precise, um, very thorough processes that someone could walk through that were created by people with an incredible scientific, even engineering level understanding of human consciousness from their own systematic exploration of the nature of mind and reality. Whether it's Buddhist traditions or yogic traditions, these are systems created by humans. These are essentially technologies. And they're technologies that have been iterated on over and over and over again for thousands of years. And they work, you know, pretty well. I mean, some, for some people they can be successful, so for some people they can't. Um, and sometimes they can take a very long time. Um, and there's a lot of cultural stories that are woven into how long it's supposed to take and what sort of arduous path we're supposed to we're supposed to go on and how many years we're supposed to spend in the cave before this or that happens but stepping back and looking at these traditions from an engineer's perspective realize that um, 
these systems could still continue to be optimized. They could continue to be evolved. They could continue to be enhanced. And we weren't limited by language, written and spoken, which is the predominant technology that all of the spiritual traditions that I'm sure any of you have interacted with have relied on. Either you're listening to someone speak, or you're um, reading a book, or you're chanting, or um, somehow some kind of information is being conveyed to you conceptually because that was sort of the high-tech, the limit of high-tech for a very long time. Um, but, um, but I realized that, the, that, that these traditions, these practices, were just these um, manifestations of thought, of idea. And that all of the technology that we're creating around us, the cell phones, Facebook, rockets that we launch to other planets, all of these things are also just creative impulse, the mind of, of human manifested into a physical form. And so the only limitation in the technology that we're creating is human ingenuity, human creativity. And the only thing that was keeping the technology that we were building from serving the exact same purpose that these ancient, ancient traditions were serving was our own volition, our own interest, the, our own capacity to imagine what these technologies could do. And so that, that struck me very clearly, that I could actually bring these two things together, that I, I could actually approach this problem of human suffering in the same way that it had been approached from the perspective of Buddhism, from the perspective of yogic traditions, from the perspective of, of countless other traditions, I could approach it as an engineer, I could approach it as a scientist, could put it, frame it in a scientific lens, understand the mechanisms behind human suffering, understand how enlightenment essentially works in the brain, in the body. And once you have a map of how this works, once you can build a scientific understanding of enlightenment, for example, well then, you can follow that map and you can build tools based on it. So, in the same way that our understanding of um, smallpox, for example, from a biological science perspective, allowed us to actually create a vaccine to completely eradicate smallpox from the face of the earth. There's no reason, actually, why our understanding of human suffering, the internal mentally curated causes of human suffering, which is understood from spiritual and religious traditions, there's no reason why understanding that from a scientific perspective can't then lead to or help catalyze the creation of advanced technologies that can essentially help catalyze or guide or facilitate people to a state free of suffering or enlightenment, whatever you whatever you want to call it. Um, so, so I got excited about this about this idea of of engineering enlightenment, and so I started I started looking around to find what I was sure would be lots of other people that were looking into this, and um, and I searched actually I searched you know on the internet, but I searched all over the world. I was emailing professors. I was planning on going back to grad school. 
and um, and it was a little bit of a problem because no one had any idea what I was talking about. This is a completely foreign idea. What you find in academia is meditation research. And even meditation research is only really um, acceptable in mainstream academic context in the last maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 years. Now, meditation research is ubiquitous. If you wanna, if you wanna go to a major university and scan, you know, put monks inside of a fMRI machine and scan their brain, it's totally fine. It's totally great. But, you can only research meditation if it's under the guise of a specific clinical condition. You have to be researching depression. You have to be researching Alzheimer's. You have to be researching, um, you know, depression, something like that, anxiety. Um, so because we think of everything in terms of the pharmaceutical model, this is a machine, and we're trying to fix one specific problem in the machine. And so we go through systematically and we say, okay, what little problem, in what ways can meditation replace a pill, essentially? Um, but if you try to actually talk about the fundamental reason why meditation, for the most part, was actually invented, why these tools were actually created, why these monks, and probably many of you in this, in this room, have spent perhaps hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of hours engaged in these practices. It's because these practices offer a salvation of sorts. They, these practices are not just for their own sake. These practices, um, from a neurological perspective, can produce very distinct changes in the brain in the way that the brain is structured physically, but also in the way that various brain networks relate to each other. But from an experiential perspective, these, um, the results, the potential results for these practices is a distinct change in our experience of reality, our, a distinct shift in our sense of self and its relationship to the outside world the relationship between a supposed subject and object, our sense of agency, our sense of who is doing this, but most importantly, the fundamental causes of uh, mental conflict that create predominantly the suffering in our lives, that not only can be eradicated, but it's something that happens quite frequently and is just beginning to be studied from a scientific perspective. So, um, So going back, trying to talk to these professors that are doing research on meditation about post-traumatic stress disorder and saying, hey, I want to build a machine that like reads a certain part of people's brain and then provides some audio-visual feedback to guide them in a highly efficient way towards this experience that you're not even really talking about in your research because you're not allowed to in academia. Totally a completely foreign idea not happening. No one's really thinking about it. It's, it's frankly, it's, it's in an academic context, uh, pretty new. Um, so what I ended up doing is, um, uh, searching around and I ended up finding a few people that were, that were into this. I found some great collaborators. Actually, I think, uh, one of them, I think both of them might've been speaking here at some point, uh, earlier in the week. And, um, I spent about a year, a year and a half, 
researching every imaginable technology that could be used in this regard. So every kind of brain stimulation technology, electrical brain stimulation, magnetic brain stimulation, ultrasound brain stimulation, light stimulation, sound stimulation, um, you can look at various types of feedback technologies, technologies that can read the brain in different ways using the electrical activity of the brain, the magnetic activity of the brain. There's really an incredible number of possible routes that you could take. The brain is a central point of focus because it seems to be related so deeply to our conscious experience, but you can also take a focus on what's happening in the body as well. Um, so the, the interesting thing is um, when I take a step back and I, um, and I look around at the, at the trends, in, uh, the technological trends that seem to be happening, um, to me it seems like um, this path of trying to think about technology in a new way um, is actually happening on its own. It actually seems to be a natural trend that is emerging whether or not I... You know, I do anything about it or anyone else does anything about it, um, which is a little bit counterintuitive because if we think about the technologies that we use every day, these are technologies that for the most part increase our mental activity, externalize our attention, and create a, um, an increased amount of content or information that we're consumed with. Think about all the technologies that you interact with, whether it's your phone, your, your television, your, you know, your car, radio, whatever it is. These are providing feeds, updates, Twitter, Twitter updates, Facebook feeds, um, graphs, charts, even the wearable technologies that are start beginning to emerge are also just about providing content and information. You wear a device around your wrist for a week, and then at the end of the week, you look at a chart or a graph, and it gives you some, some status update on how many miles you've walked or how much food you've eaten. But um, all of these things, all of these content or information-based technologies actually draw us away, arguably, from the experience that we're seeking. And if you think about the most meaningful experiences in your life, they're probably not going to have anything to do with information or content. They're probably going to be completely non-conceptual experiences that are very much grounded in a present moment felt experience. Whether it's you know watching a beautiful sunset, uh, spending time with someone that you love, you know some crazy adventure you had out here at Burning Man where you saw some tripped out you know robot thing dancing with fire coming out of its face. Um, it wasn't that there was a chart next to it that told you how you should feel or some information graph that conveyed to you something important, it was that the experience itself, the visceral experience there in the moment, and the feeling that came up, that's what was significant. And the technologies that we're using actually bring us away from that. They bring us to a more um, mentally occupied state of mind. But what's interesting is if you look at the trend of the technologies, we are increasingly moving towards technologies that in some way or another monitor what we are, what we are doing, how we're feeling, what our bodies are doing, whether it's movement tracking, tracking your pulse, tra wearable EEGs, which measure brain activity, which are now becoming more popular. Um, 
Now, these are all forms of essentially technology-assisted self-reflection. These are mirrors of a sort that provide us some insight into what is happening inside of us. And what's interesting is um, if we think about some of the most effective techniques that we can use for transformation, they are all in some way a form of self-reflection. Watching your breath, watching your thoughts, watching um, the whole of experience pass through your consciousness. Um, these are feedback loops that we're setting up where we can um, basically um, bring back that present moment experience into our consciousness and get sort of caught in that present moment experience loop in the, um, in the constantly changing uh, fabric of this moment. And, um, and so technology is perfect for doing this same kind of thing. So um, I'll give you some example, some examples of some of the technologies I think are, that are most interesting in going down this path of sort of this enlightenment engineering. Um, so I mentioned that there's nothing happening in academia. It's actually not true. There's one main project that I know of that I think is worth mentioning. And this is a good example of looking forward what I think is possible and what I think are some of the most likely approaches that we can take. Um, there's a researcher named uh, Judson Brewer and a few other researchers that were based out of Yale. And part of their research was taking not just experienced meditators, but, uh, and this was not something that they could actually publish in their research, but something that was part of their criteria, criteria for choosing these subjects, but meditators that had actually, um, b by the approval of whatever tradition that they were in, um, had actually transitioned into a persistent enlightenment experience. Not where they had had some passing mystical experience, but they had actually had a persistent shift in their experience. Um, and you, you take these meditators, you put them into a machine called an fMRI machine. And what this machine does is it scans the activity inside of your brain. And you can actually watch certain areas light up as essentially the blood flow changes inside the brain. Now, if you have these meditators tra transition into different states, then you can actually watch and say, well, interesting. This person's brain is distinct from this other person's brain who, who doesn't meditate or from this, these group of, this group of people that doesn't meditate. And you can also say, when this person transitions into these different states, their brain also looks different and all of these meditators have a common pattern. And that's what they found. In this particular research, they found that in these two networks in the brain, one called the task network and one called the default mode network, and these are sort of the main brain networks that kick on sort of oscillating back and forth in our normal day-to-day -day life. When you're sitting and you're sort of not doing anything and your mind is kind of wandering and you're sort of in a daydream state, that's your default network kicking in. And then when you're tasked with something, you're focused on something, you're actively doing it, that's your task network kicking in. And interestingly, for these long-term meditators, what they found is there's a certain pattern of um, deactivation in the default network 
And there's a certain pattern where normally it's just one or the other oscillating back and forth. But these things actually start, these separate networks actually start to oscillate more in harmony with each other. But what's interesting is once you can identify this part of the brain that you're interested in that you think is most related to realizing this state of consciousness, what you can actually do is you can train people using that information to attain that state. So the way this would work is you take a person that doesn't have a lot of meditation experience, you slide them inside of an fMRI machine, and you scan this particular part of the brain that we're interested in. And you're watching to see, does that part of the brain increase or decrease in activity? This is a, a fairly simplistic model, but and they'll become more sophisticated over time, but this actually is the way that they were doing it. And so if I was doing it, I'd be sitting in the machine and I would see a screen in front of me. And that screen would have like a bar graph. And the more activity there was in this part of my brain, the higher the bar graph would go. And the less activity there was in this part of the brain, the lower the bar graph would go. And what you say to that person is, lower the bar graph. Now, if I were to say to you, hey, decrease the activity in your posticular cecular cortex, you wouldn't really know how to do that. I mean, you wouldn't know how to do that at all. It doesn't make any sense. You can't really uh, like actively control a part of your brain in the same way you can control your finger. But the interesting thing is, once you create a feedback loop, once you create the ability for you to actually have some knowledge about what's happening in these areas inside your brain, you can actually teach people to control that area inside the brain. And that's called neurofeedback. It's been around for a long time, and now there's a renaissance in neurofeedback happening in academia using much more sophisticated equipment. And so what happened with these novice meditators is that, um, and it's actually, there's one interesting anecdotal story where one of them is sitting in the machine, and you can see the graph of sort of how they're able to change this part of the brain. Um, and when they figure it out, the meditator, this novice meditator, said something interesting. He said, oh, I see. It's not about thinking about my breath. It's about feeling my breath. And once there was that distinct transition where that per- person was able to go into a more experientially dominated experience rather than a conceptually dominated experience they had a corresponding change in what was happening in their brain. And all of this was facilitated through this guided fMRI-based neurofeedback. So this is something that requires you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment inside of a lab, but um, this is just one example of what I think are many different possible approaches to, to walking down this path. So um, I think maybe the... Oh, by the way, if anyone has any questions at any point while I'm talking, you guys can all feel free to interrupt. We can make it interactive if you want. Um, so um, maybe, the, maybe the, the next fun thing would be to sort of go through some, some other examples of technologies that I think are interesting and uh, maybe some technologies that I'm, that I'm actually working on. Um, so some other, some other examples of really promising technologies that are out there, the types of things that I think we're going to begin to see um, one example are brain stimulation technologies. And this is something that probably most people don't know about right now, but there are already a few consumer devices that are appearing on the market, and there will be a flood of them, I promise, in the next five to ten years. And what these devices do is they're a- able to actually 
change the activity in some specific area of the brain. That might be using a small electric current. Um, some of those technologies are called TDCS or transcranial direct current stimulation. And it actually runs a very small amount of electricity through your brain. And that can actually change the way your brain works. Other types of technologies actually use ultrasound to stimulate your brain. And there's actually a, a guy in the Bay Area who's building a, a DIY version of an ultrasound brain stimulator. And what this can actually do is pinpoint a small area in the brain and increase or decrease the activity in the brain. And there's a bunch of other examples as well, but what this is opening the door to is what I think will be way beyond what we saw continue to see in the um, entheogenic or psychedelic space. Um, in, the chemical, um, in the chemical ability to control human consciousness, I think what we'll find is that technology is actually a much more powerful tool. Because with technology, what you can do is you can um, control in a much more active, much more real-time, much more precise way. You can actively monitor, for example, the entire brain. And by watching what's happening inside the brain, you can get an idea for someone's shifts in experience. You can monitor, for example, if we're talking about meditation, to what degree they're going into or out of thought or what degree that they're entering into certain genres or whatever it might be. And you can actually sort of tweak and change and turn knobs and turn dials and increase the activity here and decrease the activity there. And you can actually sort of actively control this whole machine up here, um, this sort of consciousness antenna to um, guide people into, into specific experiences. And, um, and, I, and I think there's no question in my mind that what I'm interested in is, is of course, um, enlightenment engineering, using this for um, the expansion and transformation of human consciousness. But all of these technologies are, are double-edged swords. Um, so in the same way that you may be able to use these technologies for um, this, what I would consider a, a very useful and positive thing, the eradication of human suffering, um, I believe you can also, with these to technologies, make some of the most addicting, um, addicting uh, interactions ever known to man, more addicting than even the most addicting drugs ever created. Um, you can make things that can produce any imaginable type of human experience from the greatest anger, fear, hatred, whatever it is. So once you start being able to tweak with the deeper foundations of our conscious experience, you start to open up some interesting doors. Um, so um, so to give you a, a, an example of something that I'm working on that I think has some interesting possibility, um, there's a... So as I mentioned, there's there's a whole wave of these consumer EEG devices that are entering into the market. And what these devices do is you put them on your head and they can actually measure the activity inside your brain. And these devices cost $100, $200, $300. $300. $300. that I'm working on right now actually takes these brain waves that are being measured by this machine and turns them into music. And the idea is this. The idea is that now, um, the idea is that by actually being able to hear this music created by your brain, where the music is a form of self-reflection, 
the music is like a fabric or tapestry representing all the myriad changes going on that can be measured inside of your brain. By listening to this over time, not only do you begin to learn these patterns, you begin to understand, oh, when that melody shifts, when these tones come in, ah, when this harmony uh, transforms in this way, you can begin to build a relationship between that music and your own conscious experience. Oh, when I'm focused and I'm working and I'm in the flow, that sounds like this. Ah, when I get angry, when I'm um, unfocused, when I'm distracted, ah, that has this kind of composition, this kind of sound, this kind of texture. As you begin to become fluent in this sort of soundtrack of your own mind, the idea is that, and this is based on the, the very well-established premise of neurofeedback, is that if you know the state you want to get to, and you know what it sounds like, and you also know your musical path to get there, which is essentially a musical composition, by basically playing this music with your mind, you are guiding your own conscious experience through the music. And so um, the idea is that uh, in this scenario, you're not actually telling people the right place to go or the wrong place to go, but you're giving them a deep insight, a deep level of self-awareness that you're facilitating using this technology to help them learn to become more self-aware and guide their own experience. No, so that's a, that's a technology that I'm working on right now. So we have some prototypes that are pretty interesting. And so that's an example of something that I'm working on that I think is interesting. Yes. Yeah, so um, it's, a little, it's a little more complex than that. Um, it probably, well... Um, you're not measuring necessarily emotion directly in the brain. Um, you're measuring um, things that are things that are a little bit more abstract and harder to pin down in terms of how they directly relate to to our experience. Um, but um, more in this case, what you'd be trying to do is to create a really complex texture of sound, um, where it wouldn't just be one sound happening or another sound happening. At any given moment, there could be dozens of different simultaneous threads of sound that are going on. Um, because it's a lot of information, a lot of complexity in terms of what's happening in the brain. And you wouldn't even necessarily be pinpointing and saying, oh, that sound corresponds to this thing in my brain. It would be more of a non-conceptual kind of feeling where you would learn the relationship, just like when you hear a song it makes you feel a certain way. Um, you don't even necessarily have to articulate how that song makes you feel, but you're still familiar with that feeling at a deeper non-conceptual level. Does that make any sense? Yeah, okay. So uh, I see what you're saying. Um, there's different ways of doing the feedback. Um, one way would be to try to get you to feel a specific thing. Um, so let's say I was trying to guide you in a certain direction. Then I would want a certain sound to feel better and a certain sound maybe to be more dissonant. And then you would naturally sort of guide yourself to the more harmonious sound and guide yourself away from the more dissonant sound. And that's one way of doing feedback. The goal with this, and it's not possible, but sort of the theoretical point we're trying to reach, is a more neutral sound space, where you're not favoring or biasing one area of the sound space over another. You allow people to build their own interpretation of the sound space and how it relates to their own experience. And of course, there's going to be difficulties there, and there are, there are some difficulties there, but that's the goal, is not to try to say, oh, this is a more positive-sounding um, tonal space, and this is a more negative-sounding tonal space, because we're trying to not actually interpret these things for you. We're trying to leave it open so that you can create your own interpretation. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, 
it, a lot of that relates to context. Um, so I'm really interested in technologies that can be used. I call it full-time, real-time feedback. So technologies that can, in some way, augment our waking experience. Something that you could be wearing, just like we have our wearables now, except the difference is instead of just tracking information, for you to look at on a computer a week later as a chart or a graph, what if instead you're wearing a technology that can directly monitor some aspect of your level of anxiety, your level of stress, your level of presence, the degree to which you're sort of lost in sort of a, a mentally preoccupied state versus grounded and present moment experience. And that technology could give you direct feedback as you walk around, while you drive your car, while you're sitting at work, while you're walking you know, through the playa, whatever it is. Um, we could potentially use those tools as a way to give us a deep and regular feedback into our normal waking life instead of reserving it for these few times we sit on the cushion or whatever it might be. So to answer your question, um, you can't really do that um, with uh, visual stimuli because it um, detracts so much from the kind of processing that we need to do in our normal waking experience, whereas you can actually wear headphones and you can walk around and you can drive your car and you can sit at your computer and do work. Um, so in terms of like the context of normal experience, sound is, you know, more, uh, is less at odds with that. Hey. Yeah. Well, so I think what you're getting at is do you even have to be aware that this is going on? Yeah. And I don't think that you actually do. And I think that's where a lot of the brain stimulation technologies will come into play. Um, I think that what I just talk about, talked about with the music is what I would call a form of feedback technology, where it's measuring something and then feeding that back to you in some way in order to guide you to some experience. But there's also a different way of doing it, where I could actually measure what's happening inside your brain or inside your body, and then I could use, for example, a small amount of electrical current to then adjust and tweak and change that part of the brain in order to continually bring you back and continually guide you, almost like... Um, if you had, let's say, a very intuitive meditation instructor, right, that could sort of sit next to you while you're meditating, and every time you went off into thought, sort of tap you on the shoulder to bring you back. Well, that tapping on the shoulder or that whisper in the ear or whatever it might be is a form of brain stimulation, whether it's sound or contact or whatever it is. Um, you can imagine a very similar thing with a form of electrical stimulation that's very pointed, very directed, and very precise, that can have the exact same purpose of guiding you back, guiding you back, guiding you back. Um, so in terms of um, ultrasonic sound, um, I'm not super familiar with our ability to um, respond to ultrasonic sound um, in that way. But I think, generally speaking, yeah, you could do it um, with other stuff. Hey. So uh, this is new for enlightenment, but what about... Yeah. Um, so there's... There's no shortage of people developing interventions for pathologies um, or for clinical conditions. I would say, actually, that's predominantly what's happening. Um, there's no one, as far as I can tell, developing technologies for what I consider to be much more fundamental, the, the fundamental root of, of actual human suffering, to try to get to the very core of that. Um, and from my, from my perspective... Um, a lot of the larger global strife that we see comes from, um, I guess in one sense you could say, this fundamental sense of separateness. 
the idea that there's a me and there's these bad guys out there or there's the me and then there's this earth down here. Um, this, the maliciousness, the greed, the fear, the anger, all of that comes from this division between self and other. All of that comes from these mentally constructed ideas that we cling to as truth about who's bad, who's good, what's right, and what's wrong. And it's that, um, it's that, it's that existence of being stuck and dominated by that mentally created supposed truth, these belief structures that we cling to as if they're reality itself, that actually seems to create a lot of the, a lot of the suffering in the world and a lot of the global catastrophe in the world. And so, from my perspective, getting at, using technology to get at that fundamental illusion, to get at that fundamental core, is potentially the kind of transformative uh, intervention that could actually solve problems from the inside out, as opposed to looking at the surface manifestation of the problem and saying, oh shit, we really fucked up our oceans, or wow, these guys are fighting, like send in more troops, or whatever it is, start at the very root of it, start at the very heart of the issue. And I, I sort of didn't directly answer your question, but I guess it's just to say that, yes, I think this should be addressed towards clinical conditions, um, of course, and I think that there's a lot of work going in that direction. And I also believe that this work kind of gets even deeper below that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So um, it's interesting. So there's not there's not a there's not a whole lot of stuff out there. Here's some interesting stuff that I think would be worth checking out. Um, and this is some of the foundational uh, information that that I that I draw from. Um, there's a researcher that I've worked a lot with. His name's Jeffrey Martin, um, and he was supposed to be speaking here, and, and I think he. He didn't make it to Burning Man, unfortunately. And the work that he did is very interesting because he was one of the first people to take a very scientifically grounded approach to researching enlightenment. Not from any particular religious perspective and not limited to any particular spiritual tradition. Across traditions, whether it's Buddhism, yogic traditions, um, Judaism, Christianity, you name it, um, people that didn't even have any specific meditation tradition at all, what he looked for was an underlying pattern, an underlying pattern that didn't need to rely on any spiritual language at all. Looking at things like memory, cognition, various aspects of psychology and behavior, and even aspects of certain neural signatures. And from that, you can begin to build this model of enlightenment essentially or what actually probably should be called persistent non-symbolic experience which is the clinical term for it in this context to actually build a model for it that you can begin to talk about not as a spiritual thing but as a very real measurable and attainable phenomenon that thousands and thousands of people experience that's a distinct persistent change and some of the qualities of this persistent change include um a shift in the perceived sense of self from a localized self contained like inside of you looking out to a more expanded um, sense of self that is more boundless. Um, uh, emotion, there are distinct emotional changes from predominantly negative or a mix of negative and positive emotion transitioning to predominantly positive emotion uh, to a more of sort of a yuna kind of uh, heart-centered, sort of love-based kind of emotion, even at far stages or certain parts of the spectrum to no emotion at all. Um, and there are you know, other aspects such as agency, for example. Um, the perception that there is a you that is doing this, 
So there is this subject and this object and that I am the one doing it and I'm in control to an increasing sense that this is just happening. That reality is just unfolding and there is no doer, there is just this. And so these are some qualities that you can look at that you can measure through questions and through inquiry that doesn't have to rely and can, and can bypass any particular spiritual traditions languaging. And so, um, so that's one, one researcher that I would look at that kind of opens the door for saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe we really can talk about this stuff scientifically. It doesn't mean that we can say this is what enlightenment is, right? This is just a map. It, these are just these are just symbols that we use to represent something. Just in the same way, you can't say what depression is. You can say, well, kind of looks like this in the brain. People kind of answer these questions in this way. You can just find some labels, some pointers. Um, so I don't claim to know in some absolute sense or have some grand cosmological view of enlightenment more that I say as an engineer, I do believe, and it seems from evidence that I've seen, that it is possible to contextualize this like you would any other condition in a scientific framework and to engineer it using technologies like you would if you were curing the smallpox, uh, if you were curing smallpox using a vaccine. Yes. So all of these technologies are double-edged swords, like any technology. So all you can really do is sharpen your edge of the sword as sharp as you can. Um, it's, it's your only, your only option. And I mean, or you could sort of pretend like the technology doesn't exist or try to hide it or something like that. So my approach is, um, to try to, uh, to, to realize that there is this incredible capability to use technology to shift consciousness and to try to use it in the most fundamentally useful way that I can think of, which I think is the eradication of human suffering. Yes. Yeah. So um, you, what you do see very clearly is a trend in the quantification of our existence, of our reality, right? It's starting quickly, but it's still fairly small. It's tracking your number of steps. It's tracking what you eat. Your phone is recording lots of stuff about what you do, who you talk to, where you go. Many aspects of your life are starting to become quantified and recorded. And so it's very easy to imagine 15 or 20 years down the road, that is going to increase dramatically. You're going to be wearing a patch on your arm that's going to be recording 50 different aspects of your, you know, um, uh, chemical, blood chemical composition and what's happening inside your body. Um, Your phone will have, you know, a dozen or two dozen more sensors recording things that we can't even imagine right now. Um, And so pretty soon you're talking about having sort of this increasing model of reality and um and what this connects into is a lot of these ideas in um transhumanism right where um if you really push this forward like really fast forward what you're talking about creating is essentially a map a quantification a representation of reality perceivable reality itself and the goal the sort of i think an aspect of the transhumanist vision is is to do just that the idea with transhumanism is actually to be able to replicate human consciousness to create conscious machines and to have actually our own consciousness be able to persist in perpetuity in a digital form and the only way to do that is to basically rebuild the brain digitally to rebuild consciousness digitally essentially to rebuild reality digitally 
So what all this quantification is leading towards is essentially this effort to create a virtual reality that is indistinguishable from our own reality where we actually no longer even rely on the existence of a physical reality in a sense. Meaning, in theory, your body could die and your consciousness would still exist because it's perfectly replicated in this digital form. So that's that's this idea. Um, now, the there is a distinction here between what I'm pointing towards and what this points towards. Because if you look at this transhumanist vision, what it's often really trying to um, um, give infinite longevity to is the ego. It is the, driven by a fear of death and it's driven by a fear that this separate entity inside of us somewhere will die and we will lose all these things that we are attached to. Our money, our possessions, our thoughts, our memories, our friends, our family, all of these things. And so the goal actually in this model is to A, try to use technology in order to allow essentially our egoic selves to live forever and B, to have the complete and instantaneous manifestation of all desire. If you have all of reality in a digital system, the idea is that it can be perfectly malleable to your own volition, to your own wants and to your own desires. And you can actually create a reality where desire is instantaneously and completely satisfied. So to contrast with the vision that I have, the vision that I have is the use of technology to bring people to an experience of absolute and total acceptance of what is now, independent of conditions, free of desire. That's on one extreme. The complete other extreme is, okay, well, if you can't do that, well, then maybe you can completely satisfy every imaginable desire in every possible instant. And that's the other extreme. And maybe they meet in the same place. I don't know. Um, but there are, I would say, complete total opposites. Um, yes. Oh, cool. All, all good questions. Um, so... Yeah, I haven't. I, I think the patenting of ex experience is interesting. I think there would definitely be the patenting of gateways to experience, right? The sort of the markers, the neural markers of experience, like the pleasure center or the enlightenment zone or whatever it is, and how one can stimulate that. I think that could be patented, um, probably. Um, but I haven't. I haven't talked to the EFF or anything about like that about it. Um, and uh, and you were t asking about like human augmentation and like non augmented versus non augmented humans, yeah. Oh, okay. So this we're kind of getting into more of a transhumanist world because um, I personally I'm not really interested in in human enhancement or augmentation. I'm not interested in how smart you are, how fast you can run, how much you can remember, um, even emotionally necessarily exactly what's happening there. Uh, I'm really interested in something much, much more fundamental. The very, very root of human suffering, bringing people to an experience of feeling total acceptance of what is now in this moment, independent of what the changing external circumstances might be. We all have the ability now, regardless of how smart we are, regardless of how good our memory is, regardless of how much caffeine we've had, 
to experience that sense of contentment and well-being. I'm sure all of you out on the playa have had those glimpses or those moments out roaming around where you realize, holy shit, it's here. It's always been here and it always is here. Um, and so it's that that I'm pointing to. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I'm just not so interested in, in human augmentation in that sense. And the, and the last thing, because we're actually, we don't have that much time. Um, so in terms of uh, Burning Man projects, I think it would be really cool to do stuff. I've done two Burning Man projects. Uh, well, I did one last year. I did one this year. I thought I'd mention them before we run out of time. So the Burning Man project I did last year was called HeartSync. And um, it's around a theme that I'm really interested in, which is about multi-person synchronization. How can you use technology to bring a group of people together in order to lower those boundaries, those per- that perceived sense of separateness, and create a feeling of connection, a, 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 a feeling of... Um, uh, sort of an, an empathic, connected feeling between people using some kind of technological interaction. So my approach to that last year, um, have you guys ever, ever heard of a, a technology called HeartMath? So um, HeartMath is one of the very, very few examples of what I would call a transformative technology. And that's sort of the global name we're giving to this tech space of technology. It's one of the very few cons- examples of it in the consumer marketplace. And what it is is a device that essentially measures your heart rate pattern and guides your breath. And based on the combination of measuring your heart rate and guiding your breath, it can actually bring your heart into a certain rhythm in relation to your breath that's very calming for the body and very balanced and can bring on a lot of heart-centered feelings of love and gratitude if done in the right way. And so what I created was a system to guide up to six people to a totally synchronized state of this heart rate variability coherence, where I had a, this sort of immersive environment that was this crazy fractal visual crazy thing that I created, and then these um, intricately controlled sound, the soundscape with over 30 different parameters of the sound that were constantly changing, and the visuals and the sound were in every moment updated and were based on the not only each individual's state of coherence, but also the state of group coherence, the state to which the entire group had sort of locked into this heart-based rhythm together. Um, and it was, I mean, it was really, it was, Flora was there. It was really awesome. Um, <laughs> and so um, this was an example of a, of a technology that I created with this effort in mind to try to bring a group of people into this state. Um, the thing that I have on the playa this year, which... Um, maybe you guys can have a chance to try out. It's called the heart cart. And, um, and so you can see there's two chairs over here. And so two people sit on the chair facing each other. And then the whole thing closes up over them like a cocoon. So they're in this enclosed space. And each person is feeling the other person's heartbeat vibrating their body through a personal subwoofer against their back. So every heartbeat is like this intense body vibration, but it's of the other person's heart. And every time uh, each person breathes, their breath fills the space with sound and light. And so you are experiencing the other person's breath as sound and light, and you're experiencing the other person's heart as vibration against your body. And the whole space has, it has 24 different computer-controlled lights all around the space. There's this whole ambient kind of lighting experience. And the idea is um, by merging the physiology together, 
by um, breaking down the boundaries of where my body ends and your body begins, and we begin to share our actual biosignals, begin to feel each other's heart, feel each other's breath, that you can actually begin to break down that sense of separateness, that sense of self and other, and you can actually use the technology as a way to foster a sense of personal empathic connection from one person to the other. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I should have been very clear with that. Yeah, the basic premise that I'm going off of here is that A, you can understand enlightenment from a scientific perspective, that it can be quantified, it can be understood in terms of the brain, in terms of psychology, physiology, behavior, and from that, a map essentially, from that ability to basically quantify what enlightenment is, that you can engineer it. And not only do I believe that, but that work is still, is now well underway. So there are uh, great steps forward in terms of understanding what enlightenment looks like in the brain. And there are a number of interesting technologies that are already emerging that seem to be pointing towards this as being not just some distant possibility, but I actually believe in the next 10 years or less that you will see technologies that exist that can very rapidly transition people into a persistent shift in their experience, something that you would have needed to spend 10 years in a cave meditating otherwise. And I think there's a lot of important concerns here. Um, This isn't just some uh, panacea that somehow magically solves everything. You still have reality and context to deal with. Um, You have all these interesting questions such as like, well, um, if all of a sudden you have this machine and I sit down, I put this helmet on or something like that, and then poof, something changes, the enlightenment button, um, which I think is possible, um, how do you contextualize that, right? Because that contextualization seems to be very important. That essentially is almost like the religious structures that a lot of people use to guide their experience. Um, If you don't contextualize, that can also lead to really interesting problems and and confusion about the experience. So then, in a sense, you've come into the business of creating a sort of science-based religion of sorts, potentially, where it's like, well, the guy in the lab coat is your new guru, and you know, and your you know your god are these equations or something like that. So so you you know you have to think along those lines, and of course you have to think in terms of what's um, safe, um, just for for the human system. Right, You can't overload the physiology. You can't overload the energetic system. So those things, have, of course, have to be taken into consideration. Yeah. Uh, they haven't really. <laughs> the, the, the best technologies are still the, the traditional technologies, unfortunately. Um, I, I believe that we will surpass, in certain ways, traditional tools with technologies. I'm not looking to, like replace traditional tools. I think there's a place for everything. Actually, I think that the more paths that exist, the better. Um, We should just have a million efforts from every imaginable direction to shift human consciousness. Um, But um, yeah, right now, um, there's a couple products that you guys can check out that are pretty cool. One is the HeartMath device. Um, It's called the M-Wave. And the other is a device from a company called Interaxon. And it's a wearable EEG called the Muse. And it measures your brain and has a really nice meditation feedback algorithm. And it basically plays sounds, ambient sounds, to guide you into a deeper state of meditation. So those are just a couple of the interesting technologies that are out there. Muse, M-U-S-E. Yeah. Um, It seems uh, somehow a fundamental aspect of our human nature to um, uh, perpetuate our own suffering. 
And I don't think that that will change. Um, and so this, even though it seems like somehow fundamentally different technology from meditation or something, it's not. It's the same thing. Just because it, it may be more efficient, it may be more accessible, but the same barriers that people have to, to, um, um, to breaking down their own um, belief structures and belief systems that keep them from um, f- feeling good, um, those will still remain. And so, the, of course, there will be people that will probably uprise and protest against the technologies. I would imagine some of the technologies might be made illegal. Um, I think there could be actual real cultural revolution um, as social structures change if the technologies do become more ubiquitous. I like. I think it, it would be actually, um, if these technologies become available, could be, um, A, I think that they would be one of the most desirable forms of technology on the planet because you're talking about tools that can directly address human suffering and B, I think it would be one of the most most transformative technologies to ever affect human society um, because it would so deeply affect human consciousness. And um, in terms of form factor that these technologies will come in, I guarantee you gaming will be a primary one. Um, There are some interesting uh, tools that are that are sometimes used for for various like autism and other uh, conditions that are addressed by clinical neurofeedback, um, but for nothing's really used to this extent that we're talking about as far as I know. Um, but there is a whole world of clinical neurofeedback out there. It's been around for fifty or more years, and yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, I've seen a lot of these. I'm not sure exactly which one you're talking about. But the short answer is, gaming is an incredible. A tool that we can use as a, as a form of feedback and a conduit. So I think you're going to see all kinds of games emerging that center around neurofeedback, biofeedback, and shifting human experience. But I think I think we got to end, right? Okay. So I think we got to end. So um, I'm happy to answer any questions after. Thank you all so much for for joining me. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. If you have the time right now, you may find it interesting to watch the TED Talk that Mikey gave just a few months before the talk that you and I just listened to. Uh, The visuals that he uses to illustrate that talk are really worth a look, and I'll uh, link to it in our program notes. I really uh, like Mikey's concept for audio feedback of brain states and uh, the thought that perhaps I could become fluent in the soundtrack of my mind, as he said, uh, really attracts me. Uh, But at times I'm sure that my mind would sound like headbanger music, if you know what I mean. Now, uh, I agree that uh, with a lot of thoughtful people that I wouldn't want to upload my consciousness into silicone. But I also don't believe that such a technology is uh, anywhere close to being real, uh, in fact, if it could even be developed. And I think that I've spoken about that before. So I'll let you come to your own conclusions about it uh, once you've seriously thought through all of the implications of such a thing. And, uh, and I should say, after you've read Greg Egan's excellent book, Permutation City. And uh, that's a really great book, by the way, and if you are interested at all in upgrading consciousness into, uh, or I should say, uploading consciousness into silicone, then uh, this book is not only must-reading, it uh, probably should be your starting point to think about these things. Now, that said, I'm also well aware of the fact that we humans are evolving along with our technology almost without noticing it. 
So, while I may not think uploading consciousness into silicone is a good idea, who knows what humans will be thinking 500 years from now. I'm quite sure that if one of your ancestors from 500 years ago hung around with you for a week, well, they'd probably be glad to have missed all this. <laughs> but as Bruce Damer once said, to some extent, the future is being made around us, which is why it is so very important for everyone today, everyone, not just those wizards who are developing our new tech, but all of us, particularly us users. It's up to each and every one of us to voice our opinions about the directions that we want our new technology to follow, and we're responsible as well for how we use this tech. In the past, I've already pointed out how distasteful I find it to see parents sitting in the park looking at their phones rather than watching their children play. And kids notice these things, even if they don't say anything to you about it. And even if you've given them a phone of their own to use, they still most definitely notice when your attention is directed at your hand rather than at them. And in effect, that little piece of technology in your hand has enslaved you. As Terence McKenna once said, If we could uh, raise to consciousness our alchemical heritage and our heritage in the, sh in the shamanism of the archaic, then we could actually see that the purpose of technology is to liberate, not to enslave. And somehow we've lost the thread. Technology is not being used to liberate. It's being used to enslave. That soundbite, by the way, is from podcast 226, which is part four of his Hermeticism and Alchemy series. Now, the biologist Lewis Wolpert believes that what actually made us human is technology. In an interview, he once said, It can be summed up in Kenneth Oakley's definition 50 years ago that man may be distinguished as the tool-making primate. Once our ancient ancestors figured out how to manipulate the natural world, tool-making made us human. And in my opinion, tool makers like Mikey Siegel and his associates are tool makers extraordinaire. I had to, <laughs> I really had to smile when early on in the talk that we just listened to, Mikey said that he was a somewhat traditional engineer. Well, I'm an electrical engineer myself, and I paid my way through law school working as an engineer. A traditional engineer. <laughs> I designed motor control centers and electric heat tracing systems. And actually, uh, I guess about the coolest thing that I ever did as an engineer, and this isn't very cool, <laughs> was to figure out how to keep the peanut butter hot and flowing through the pipes at the uh, Quaker Oats plant where they were trying to make peanut butter crunch. At the uh, time, I had small children, and they were very impressed with a thank you letter to me from Captain Crunch on his official stationery. Now, that, <laughs> that's a traditional engineer. <laughs> Mike and his friends are on a whole other planet from us traditional engineers. And so my advice to any young saloner out there thinking about going into engineering, stay away from traditional engineering. Head out here to the coast and uh, figure out how to become involved in, uh, well, what I guess I'm now going to have to begin thinking of as maybe the new normal for traditional engineering. Anyhow, uh, one last thought and I'll let you go. It has to do with technology, the talk that we just listened to, gaming, and sports. 
You see, on Saturday I was looking through the listing of live Periscope feeds, and I noticed uh, one that said it was a conversation with the fastest man in the world. So I checked it out, and actually it was a conversation with Usain Bolt, who may actually be the fastest person ever. And he was driving his car through the streets of Jamaica while someone in the passenger seat periscoped their conversation. So now you've got the technology part and the sports part. What about today's talk? Well, a few moments ago, we heard Mikey Siegel say how important he thought gaming was going to be to our species' future evolution. And what do you think Hussein wanted to talk about most? <laughs> it was gaming. He's a really avid gamer, and the most exciting thing he is looking forward to this year is uh, the release this coming November of the next edition of his favorite game. Now, I see a lot of significance in this uh, from several directions, but maybe it's just me. So, I'm going to let you think about all that for yourself right now and get out of here, too. So, for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.